Welcome to Faith to Face, the weekly church services of Calvary Chapel Living Water in Garden Grove, California, taught by Pastor Johnny Trevino. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, the Bible says that we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Until then, we're called to read, practice, and grow in the faith that Christ set the example for. It's not in the attaining of perfection, it's the reaching for and the striving to live out the life He wanted us to lead. As we do, we sharpen our faith and we see His face in each other. We see Him faith to face. Here's Pastor Johnny. Luke chapter 17, that's where we find ourselves this morning. On the heels of John chapter 11, the title of our message is Remember Lot's Wife. We, um, Luke 17, we were in John chapter 11 and what we're doing is we're going through the life of Jesus chronologically, so we're jumping around back and forth from or through the Gospels. In this case, last week we were again, as I said, in John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. And this week we find ourselves in Luke chapter 17, and that's the chronological order, and you'll see how how that comes together uh, as we share this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word. Thank you, Lord, for uh, just the fact, Lord, that you want to guide us. You want to um, bring, Lord, just truth into our lives. And Father, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers, not deceiving ourselves. And so... Thank you for this opportunity that we have, Lord, just to sit at your feet, to take in your word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 17, we're starting at verse 11. Let's read that. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And so here's the timeline of what's taking place. Hold your finger if you want in Luke and go ahead and go where we were last week, John chapter 11, and I summarized these verses um, at, as we ended the study last week. We didn't read them, but uh, it ended, or at least chronologically, it would end at verse 54, and then we would jump over to Luke chapter 11, right where we're at. So let's read verse 54. The Bible says in John chapter 11, verse 54, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And so upon the healing of Lazarus, the, some people went to the Jewish leaders, to the religious leaders, and they announced that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead four days in the tomb, and word got out, and the Jews sought to kill him. They're conniving, they're scheming, they're planning now, To kill Jesus. We are days away from the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry on earth. So in John 11.54, it states that after raising Lazarus to avoid the authorities who were seeking to kill him, Christ went to a city called Ephraim, north of Jerusalem, near the border of Samaria. From there, he apparently traveled north through the Samaria and Galilee one more time, possibly to join friends and family from Galilee who would be making pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. From there, he would have traveled south by the conventional route, which would have brought him through Jericho. And we see that in uh, chapter 18, verse 35 of Luke, to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to remember that Jesus is on a mission. And his mission is he set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus was born to die. 
He knew that this was inevitably within God's plan for him. He knew that this was in God's timing, but it would be not a second sooner or later than God had determined it for him. Let me read you a couple verses out of Luke's gospel just to refresh our memory on that mission that Jesus is on. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 51. The Bible says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then in Luke chapter 13, notice verse 22. The Bible says, And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the Passover and Exodus and and the promise of God and what took place um, with the plagues that were set upon Egypt and the last plague, the the plague of of the firstborn being killed, there would be a lamb that would be slaughtered, blood on the lentil and the doorpost of the house, and the angel of death would come and it would pass over that house if it found the blood on the doorpost. And so the Jews don't want Jesus to be killed or crucified during this time. But guess what? Within God's providence, that's exactly when Jesus is going to hang on the cross. When lambs are going to be slaughtered in commemoration for the Passover, the Lamb of God would be on the cross dying for the sins of the world. And that blood would be applied to our lives and God's judgment would pass over Uh, Just awesome as we're going to get into that final week. It's called the Passion of the Christ, the last week. And that's right where we're headed within this section. But Jesus isn't finished. He has a work to do, and there's a work to be done. Verse 12 in Luke chapter 17 goes on to say, Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. So ten individuals plagued with the disease of leprosy. Leprosy is very much like our modern AIDS. What AIDS does from the inside out, leprosy back then did from the outside in. It would affect the extremities, the feet, and then it would come up through the legs, the hands. It would come up through the arms and the extremities, the edges of the ears, the nose, the chin. It would hit the extremities and it would basically poison or pollute you from the outside in and it was a terminal Illness as AIDS. Both of them are types of sin. And so within here, we see a picture of sin. Not that people who contracted leprosy, it was because they were in sin. No, it's just a picture for us to look at of sin, as is AIDS. Eats you from the inside out, leprosy from the outside in. Verse 13 goes on to say, And they lifted up their voices, these ten lepers, and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus would come upon this individual that would yell out, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a leper. Lepers weren't allowed to mingle or interact amongst the um, normal population. In fact, there were leper colonies that they were excluded to. And so uh, this leper in Matthew chapter 8 hears of Jesus, hears that the Messiah has come, and sees Jesus walking and reaches, calls out to him, have mercy on me. And in that case, Jesus would go to that individual and do something that nobody would do. He would touch him, lay hands on him, and heal him. And then he would tell him, go to the priest and you know, let him know what has taken place because there's a sacrifice that needs to be made. And um, 
and don't tell anybody else. And then he does the very opposite. He tells everybody. And uh, Jesus just didn't want the word to get out because then he'd have to move. And that's exactly what took place in Matthew chapter 8. He'd have to move his ministry because too many people were coming to him for the wrong reasons. So Jesus, we go on, it goes on at least in uh, verse 13. And they lifted up their voices and said to Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Verse 14, so when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. So what does that show us? But as we obey God's word, there's a healing. There's a cleansing. As they went, as they heeded the voice of God, as Jesus says, go and do this thing, as they went, they were healed. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks And he was a Samaritan. So it doesn't tell us that all of them were Jewish except this one, but we know that it was was a mixed um, multitude, a mixed ten. At least this one was Samaritan. Uh, The other is Jewish or maybe another Samaritan in the bunch. It doesn't specifically say. Um, This experience of just uh, sensing God's healing and then just glorifying him with a loud voice uh, happened to me. Let me read that verse again because I like how it reads. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. It would be in 1986 that I would give my life to the Lord. Six months later, our church was invited to a, a, a rally, uh, something where we were just going to go and listen to uh, these lineup of speakers, and I was excited to be able to go. And I was just in pain. I was sick. But I, but I didn't want to miss it. And so I was there, and, and I was worshiping, and we just had an opportunity. And then the individual who was teaching at the time, I remember, he said, if anybody is sick, I want you to stand, and I want to pray for you. And if anyone in this audience has yet to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit as well, I want you to stand up, and I want to pray for you. And I was one of those ones that would stand up, a baby, baby Christian, I knew nothing of the scriptures. I was just growing in my faith. And all I knew was I was blind, but now I see. My eyes had been opened to a spiritual realm that I never even really knew existed. And so I stood to my feet and I was just in pain. And I remember this this preacher, this minister, he said, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And I felt from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, just this heat, this light, this sensation just run through my body and just, it like cleansed me and cleared me. And I was like, at the top of my lungs, hallelujah, hallelujah. I was just, and I remember, and I remember because I remember the preacher, he's looking at me like, Bro, you're a little loud there. I mean, I mean, this is a Pentecostal gathering, but you're louder than everyone else. And I just, I, I just, I, it was like almost not uncontrollable, but I was just so elated and blessed that God had healed me and touched me and baptized me in the Holy Spirit simultaneously. And it was just, just such a joy. But again, as I was reading this this week, I just, I, my mind was taken back 26 years ago. When I would give my life to the Lord, within six months or something, I would be at this place and this would, this would happen. And so I was just so blessed. The next verse, um, and fell down on his face, uh, on his face and at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. This idea of giving thanks, God has called us to be people who are grateful, to be people who can recognize the blessings that we have 
And to have that heart of gratitude, a thankful heart, a grateful heart, is a sign of a spiritual person. A grateful heart, a thankful heart, is a sign of a spiritual person. Um, In Ephesians 5.20, that section right there, it would talk about what it looks like when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, when you are spirit-filled and you are walking in the Spirit. And right there in verse uh, 20 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, it says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the flip side of that, an unthankful heart is part of the bottom rung on the way down the ladder of spiritual degradation. Romans one twenty one says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. If you're not sure what you have to be thankful for, start with very simple things. Very simple things. Do you know that the Bible declares that God holds the breath that sits right here in front of your face? God holds that breath. That air that is right there. God could at any moment pull it away. Lord, thank you. Thank you that I have air to breathe. Start small. Start small. There's uh, just working with these special education children. There's such a blessing. But many of them have things that they don't have things that I possess, an ability to walk. Lord, thank you. I can walk. Lord, I can blink regularly. I, that doesn't have to be regulated for me. Thank you that my hearing is, is functional and I can hear. As I'm getting older, my vision is kind of slipping, so I think I'm going to have to do the little eye check. But um, thank you that I can see. Nonetheless, I could drive a vehicle, even with corrective lenses. Thank you, Lord, for glasses and the inventor of such. So there's a lot. There's a lot that we can be thankful for. And the Lord would have us to be grateful people. The Lord would have us to look for those things and, and to recognize. The Bible declares that every good and perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father. So we want to be those who are thankful. As we go on in verse 17, so Jesus answered and said, where were there not 10 cleansed, but where are the nine? So notice Jesus doesn't only notice when we're grateful, but he notices these nine who are not grateful. Verse 18, were there not any, were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And so now Jesus is making an example of this Samaritan to the Jews. Notice, guys, this foreigner, this guy that's not even within the nation of Israel is the one that came back and gave thanks. Verse 19, and he said to them, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And he said to him, so specifically, that word well is whole in the original language, in the Greek. Your faith has made you whole. Many people in the world will be healed. But notice, only this one that comes back and gives thanks, acknowledges Jesus, is made whole or complete from the inside out. He would be made right with God. He would have eternal life, if you will. Verse 20 goes on to say, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said to them, Notice the question, When is the kingdom of God coming? When is the end of the world coming? Coming. When are you setting up your kingdom? Remember, they thought that Jesus or the Messiah would come and set up the kingdom physically. Jesus, Jews are wanting to kill you, the religious leaders. Are you going to set up your kingdom anytime soon? 
He goes on to say in verse 20, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Now, I don't know if he's saying, uh, Pharisees, you're not going to see it. You're not going to see it. Or if he's just saying, no, it doesn't come with observation. It's something that's within. Verse 21, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. That word within is among. So the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus is standing in their midst. The kingdom is there. Verse 22, then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one of the part of under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. Very important, what Jesus is doing, we're going to go into Matthew 24 when we get into the Olivet Discourse as we're going through the life of Jesus. But right now what Jesus is doing is he's giving them some end times things that are going to take place. What some of the things or the signs that are going to take place in the end times. This specifically is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he says, as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so will the Son of Man be when he comes back. What does that mean? Everybody is going to see it. Jesus isn't coming back undercover. He's not coming back in secret. As many of the false religions have taught, Jesus came back in, or Jesus is coming back in 1918. No, we change our mind. Jesus is coming back in 1920. No, we change our mind again. Jesus is coming back in 1925. Jehovah's Witnesses have that on record as one of their prophecies. And then when nobody saw that Jesus came back in 1925, they said, no, he did. In fact, we built a house for him in San Diego, California. It's in their documents. He came back invisibly. Nobody saw him. Is that what this just said? As the lightning flashes from the east to the west, don't let anybody deceive you. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This generation of people, this generation that Jesus came to, the Bible declares, received him not. So therefore, first he must suffer many things from this generation. Verse 26, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Judgment came to Noah's generation when God said, man's heart is wicked. Every thought is continually evil, it would say in Genesis chapter 6. Therefore, God's judgment came in the form of a flood. And he's saying, as it was in the days of Noah, people were living their lives separated from God as they are today. Exactly. Just look at the new television programs that come on. As I look at the previews for the different programs, I just think, no thought, no care, no concern for God. None of that. People are just living their lives, as in the days of Noah, with no thought to God or eternal things. Notice verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And so he gives two examples of pending judgment, of judgment that came for pending judgment. The example of Noah, that generation was judged. Rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. God wiped out that entire 
um, group of people and started fresh with Noah, his wife, his three sons, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Ham sandwich. Yeah, those three sons and their wives. And then you have Sodom and God's judgment that came upon them. And he says, and these things aren't bad in and of themselves. He's pointing to um, Lot, and he says they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Those aren't bad things in and of themselves. Those are, those are issues of life, right? Nothing wrong in and of themselves. But when you live your life separated from God or the existence of God or God in your life, then he's saying, no, that's, that's not what he's called us to. He's not called us to live our lives separated from God, but to bring God into those things. And then he uses, he uses this nice little uh, example of Lot's wife. Verse 31, in that day, he who was on the housetop and, and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. The title of our message, Remember Lot's Wife. Many of you who have been in church for a little while know the story of Lot's wife. We have a, a total of 17 words given to Lot's wife in the scriptures. 17 words would come from the Old Testament. Three words would come here in the New Testament, remember Lot's wife. The heart will make a convert of the mind is the lesson that we need to get from Lot's wife. The heart will make a convert of the mind. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 26, the Bible says, But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Seventeen words. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and hold uh, Luke chapter 19. We're going to come back. But turn with me to James chapter 1. Let's break this down a little bit. As I was studying this week, this nugget of the heart and the mind was given to me, and it just blew me away. In James chapter 1, starting at verse 5, the Bible says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Do you need wisdom? James is saying. Is there information that you need as it relates to something in your life? James is saying. If that's the case, then ask God. Who gives liberally? He's not wanting to hold back information. He's not wanting to hold back the application of information to his children. Get it solid in your thinking. Be fully convinced. Be careful of your emotions. Don't put more value on what you feel than what you know. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the Bible says, Keep, that word is guard, your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. In Jeremiah chapter, 19, verse, um, chapter 17, verse 9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What did Lot's wife know? She had God's word that judgment was coming. Something in her gave room for a double-mindedness. 
something of a longing in her heart against what God had clearly communicated. Here's the scripture in Genesis chapter 19, verse 17 that Lot's wife had. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Again, do not look behind you. She had God's word. But there was something within her heart of a longing. If you study or look into the words that it says when she looked back, it was more than a simple glance. It was more of a gaze. There was a part of her that was in Sodom where she had been that God had declared judgment is coming upon Sodom and that judgment will not come until the righteous are taken out. And so it would be Lot, his wife, and his kids that the angel that would come and bring that judgment would have to grab them by their, by their hands and pull them out to this scripture right here where it says, run to the mountains. Lot would even ask for a compromise there. The mountains are so far. They're so high. Can't we just go to the next city, the city of Zor? Is that okay? The angel's like, yes, let's go. Grabs them by the hand, pulling them out. And in that moment is when Lot's wife would turn, longing for the things of Sodom. The things that God had already declared were to be judged. And so there was a longing in her heart, and her heart convinced her mind that that's where she should be, and that's where she wanted to be. She had God's word that judgment was coming. Something in her gave room for that double-mindedness, as I said. The example of Achan in um, Joshua chapter 7 is similar. God would bring the nation of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and he would have them go into the promised land. And the first battle, God wanted all the spoils to go to him because he was teaching the nation of Israel, I'm fighting for you. I'm your victor. If there's a victory in your life, it's because I'm bringing it. Therefore, I want all the spoils to come to me in this first battle. I'm going to bless you in the other battles. You guys are going to be able to partake of that loot. But this first one, I want you guys to know that I fight for you. And so somewhere in the heart of Achan was this longing. He had God's command. He had God's word, but in his heart. So he took a block of silver, uh, some type of garment, and, and something else. He hid it under his tent. And because of it, the nation of Israel would lose that battle. And then judgment would come. And God would identify one by one. He would take the tribe, the family of the tribe, the head of the tribe, the family, and he'd narrow it down to Achan and his family. And Achan would be judged. David, another example, as he was responsible to go to battle. In Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says, But David remained in Jerusalem. He had God's word where he was supposed to be. He had God's word what he was supposed to be doing. And instead, through simple disobedience, and I say simple because we think at times, what's the big deal in compromise? What's the big deal? Yeah, I mean, I know God said that, but that can't refer to me in this time and age. I mean, that's written so long ago. He had God's word. And what would happen to David? He would be on his roof and see Bathsheba or on, in his palace, see Bathsheba on her roof, bathing, inquire, call for her, and his life would never be the same. Do you question God's word? Do you doubt he knows what he's talking about? 
We sometimes look at the warnings God sets forth in his word like an individual looking through a chain-linked fence, face pressed against it, thinking that God is withholding all of this fun on the other side of the fence from us because we're Christians now. Only those people get to have all that fun. We're not taking into consideration that God is setting up these parameters to protect us so that we can maximize this thing called life. These fences are set up around ditches and hillsides with cliffs that are filled with danger and dark alleys that we have no business entering. If Jesus is promising abundant life, what does that look like and how is it realized? In its simplicity through obedience. Faith says, I'm going to take God at his word. And I might not understand it all right now. I might not be able to figure it all out. But if you or I think that we can outfigure God, that's not, that's not healthy. That's not good for us. We all struggle with what Lot's wife did. A longing to, to go back. A longing to look at things forbidden. To go, to go in a, on paths that we know we probably shouldn't be on. But that walk of faith simply says, Lord, I take you at your word. I trust that you have my best interest at heart, that you know what's good for me, what's what's best for me. We have positive examples in the Bible of people who just simply took God at his word. The nation of Israel would be prophesied that they would go into bondage. Babylon would take them and hold them captive because of their disobedience. Well, this smart young kid knew the scriptures. He got into the word. Daniel, he would be one who would be taken into captivity to Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 1, as the king wants to fatten up the youth to serve in his palace, Daniel made a commitment in his heart and he said that he purposed in his heart that he would not be defiled with the delicacies of the king and with the wine that they drank. It's as he purposed in his heart. Yeah, he knew what was right in his head, but he, he brought his heart into the equation and said, I'm a purpose in my heart. I'm going to make sure that I don't defile myself in this way. And what would be the result of Daniel's life? Blessings. Blessing after blessing. And, and like that, I don't know, person looking through the chain link fence on the other side, Daniel said, what's happening on the other side of that fence doesn't even matter to me. My eyes are on the Lord, and I'm just going to purpose in my heart to move in his direction, to go his way. And the, the outcome of that, that's a blessed life. Study the life of Daniel if you're not sure. Who was another example in the Old Testament? Joseph. The dreamer. The one that would be thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. Horrible things. Thrown into prison. Trumped up charges. And what would happen to Joseph? Faithful, faithful, faithful at every turn. Yes, he would go through difficulty, but you would see the hand of God upon this man's life, and you would see just countless blessings. As we go on in Luke chapter 19, notice after we are encouraged to remember Lot's wife, verse 33. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, and the other will be left. 
Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And so now Jesus goes into what I believe is the rapture of the church, where suddenly individuals are going to be taken. Jesus will rapture, or the church will be raptured, and Jesus will not go to the Lord in the air, according to the scriptures. Second coming of Christ, we will come back with the Lord, every eye will see, as lightning flashes from the east to the west. And so you have these just accounts of what's going to take place on this idea of losing your life for the sake of God. Helen Stringer would be a missionary to the headhunters. She would come out of Bible college, a young lady, petite little thing from all accounts, and she would tell her pastor, I want to go to these headhunters. I want to go to this group of individuals that has been just ruthless. They're diabolical. They kill people and then they eat them. But the Bible clearly has told me that I need to go out into all the world. And so out of obedience, that's what I want to do. Everybody would try to talk her out of this mission. No, it's suicide. You're crazy. It's not what God is calling you to determine. She said, nobody, no other church, no mission board will send me. So I'm coming to you, pastor. You have said that our God can do things that are impossible. So I come to you, and out of obedience, I simply want to do this. Her parents would come, Pastor, please talk her out of it. She would fall to her knees and say, you don't have to scare me. I'm already scared. Just pray for me. I want to go. This is a true story. So they lay hands on her. It's set up for 30 days. 30 days, she's going to be going to this place where these headhunters are. Um, Over and over, people who have been sent, missionaries who have been sent, the helicopters that would land the people, just all of these things. They would throw their spears in the blades of the helicopters. They would eat the crew, the pilot. They they were ruthless. So this pilot signs up. He's going to take her, and he's he's not even going to land. She's going to have to repel out of the the plane, out of the helicopter. And so her bag is dropped, and it's time for her to repel, and this guy is pleading with this pilot is pleading with her, a grandfather type. And he's like, don't go, don't go. You don't even understand. It's not even so much that they'll kill you and eat you. It's what they will do before that. You will be tortured. They will hold you for 30 days. And they'll do things to you that you can't even imagine. The pain that you'll go through. And um, so just through all of that, she's like, no, I, I have to go. I know what God has called me to. And so it would be planned that in 60 days they would meet. He would come back, hover over there, and he would take her back up. And so she would go in just obedience, flat obedience to what God had called her to. Not knowing what, what you know, was in store, but out of obedience, she would say, all right, I have to go. She would go, 60 days later, helicopter would come back to the landing where he had dropped her, and there she was. Comes back up, and he's like, what, what happened? This is crazy. I came just not even imagining that you would be here. So she come, he comes, she gets on the, on, the, on the plane with her, the helicopter, and he says, you'll never believe what happened. They had a 200-year uh, verbal tale that one day a woman would come out of the sky, a god, a female god would come out of the sky, and when I came out repelling on that plane, they thought I was that female god in their prophecy. And I said, yeah, 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 sort of. 
It's more like this. God sent me to tell you this message and you need to do everything that I say and every single one of them would get saved. And she would, and she would tell, she, she told the, the helicopter pilot, she says, it was the easiest uh, you know, mission that I've ever been on. It was great. So in her talkings with them, uh, she came to discover that there were a more ruthless people down the river. And it, she said, so you've got to take me down the river because there's more ruthless people down there that God has called me to go share with. And so he's like, no, I mean, look at this miracle. God rescued you. He saved you. They had this legend. I mean, why would you want to do this? She said, out of obedience to what God is calling me to. So he would take her, and then, of course, she would come back. And what was their legend? A female God would come up the river one day And so she did the same exact thing to those more ruthless individuals. And all of that to say, guys, I mean, God's got a plan for our lives. And if God is going before us, then who can come against us? So we need to look to the Lord. We need to walk in obedience by faith to what God is calling us to. And as we look to him, he is with us. And ultimately, it shows what are we living for? Are we living for this world and the things of this world? Are we living for eternity and the things of forever and ever? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the examples of Helen Stringer, the examples of those, Lord, who have simply obeyed the call, the command, have simply walked in obedience, Lord, to what you've called them to. As examples to us, Lord, they um, spur our faith. They stir us on, hopefully to desire to be used by you, Not in things that are difficult, Lord, but in things that are impossible. So, Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray that as we remember Lot's wife, Lord, that we would purpose in our hearts, Lord, that we would be careful not to long for the things that you have clearly communicated are not for us. When we look through the fence, Lord, I pray that we would see that it's your protective boundaries that you have set in our lives not a killjoy, not trying to keep something good from us. But Lord, you gave us your very best, your son. And that just would lead us to believe, Lord, that you have more to give. So for that, we thank you. Continue to have your way in our hearts, Lord, as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Faith to Face, the weekly teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel Living Water in Garden Grove, California, taught by Pastor Johnny Trevino. Calvary Chapel Living Water of Garden Grove meets every Sunday at 1030 a.m. at 12732 Main Street in Garden Grove, inside the Courtyard Center in the Promenade Park at the corner of Stanford and Main Street in the heart of Orange County, just three miles southwest of the Disneyland Resort in Anaheim. To listen to this or any of the other services taught at Calvary Chapel Living Water at Garden Grove, go to our website at cclivingwater.net and click on the message link at the top of the page. Scroll down and click on the listen tab. That's www.cclivingwater.net. Or you can call the church at 714-584-5452. That's 714-584-5452. Or send an email to comments at cclivingwater.net. That's comments at cclivingwater.net. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Christian. We'll see you next time when we meet with Christ face to face.